everyone. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of your favorite podcast, Hot Takes Pod. We are so excited to close out this mini series of CEOs with a fabulous and guest. 2020 and 2020. Yeah, Maddie and I are going to do another episode that's kind of a quick review of all things 2020 and looking into the new year 2021, which I know we're all very excited for. But we are closing out this mini series with an incredible guest before we get into our interview with her. However, Maddie and I will give you some life updates. So Maddie, take it away. So Jake and I are thinking of driving down to Florida for a few weeks, which would be so fun. And that transitions into Julia's life update because hopefully we get to hang out there. Julia, tell everyone the tea. So I have relocated a very Maddie Con thing of me to do, <laughs> but my family moved down to Florida. My parents recently got a house here and it's been so fabulous to be all back together me and my sisters and the whole fam hanging out we're so blessed that we were able to do this for the holidays and stay down here I've been here for a few weeks now I'm going to be going back home in January for a bit and then hopefully coming back in February given that everything is safe and um, following all the CDC guidelines and hopefully if I do come back Maddie can stop by and give us a little and we can record a podcast in person which we've been wanting to do since the beginning of this whole thing that would actually be crazy so if that happens you're gonna hear a huge change up in our audio and maybe you guys will notice a difference I'm actually when we can record together our audio is gonna be so fabulous and also I sincerely apologize for any awful audio that you guys are getting from me right now because I really don't know how this is going to sound. It sounds great. I promise. Thanks, Maddie. Okay, so now we will hop into our interview. It is our pleasure to welcome Lynn Shanahan, an impressive woman with an even more impressive retail career, onto Hot Takes. Since COVID-19, there's been a lot of buzz about what will happen to the retail industry and how it will change. Lynn is an industry veteran, as you'll soon get to know, and we cannot wait to hear her hot takes about the future of retail. After graduating from the University of Michigan, fabulous school, I love Michigan, my brother went there, and Columbia grad, Lynn dove right into the fashion world, working for Tommy Hilfiger. She held many roles at the company and eventually became the group president of U.S. Wholesale Licensing and Marketing. During her 15 years at Tommy, Lynn helped a struggling and bankrupt company reestablish its brand and authority as a beloved American retailer. After her time with Tommy, she became the CEO of Kelwood Company, where she helped build and grow premium contemporary brands, including some of our favorites like Sam Edelman and Vince. I love Sam Edelman. Fabulous brand. And Vince. In tandem, she founded the C2 Group, which is a small consulting firm that helps create business strategies for brands looking to grow amidst the fast-moving retail landscape. Lynn truly understands the ins and outs of retail, and we're so excited to hear how she became a CEO. Welcome to our show. 
Welcome, Lynn. So happy to be here. Yes. I'm so happy we were connected and so happy to have you on. Before we get into the heart and meat of your career, take us back to your time at Michigan, which I also have a little sister who's at Michigan University right now. So clearly (laughs) go blue, where you studied art history and English and then Columbia, where you graduated from their architecture school with an MS in real estate development and finance. How did you end up making the jump into the retail world? Oh, sure. Okay. Well, there's more of a backstory than uh, I think it takes me back before Michigan. I grew up in a family of retail. Um, I'm from Tulsa, Oklahoma and was uh, sooner born and sooner bred until I became a Wolverine. So, you know, football has always been, (laughs) I guess, a part of my life. Um, But my grandfather had started and owned stores with my father for over 50 years. And they were high end at first high-end menswear companies and then uh, kind of evolved into larger marketplace type retail with high-end women's, uh, men's, and home. And so I've always had uh, retail, clothing, all of that in my blood. So I, while you know, I probably knew all along it would be a part of my path of my life. I think that uh, one of the best pieces of advice that my father gave me was go to university to study what your interests are. Develop your passions for learning and curiosity. And, um, you know, I really kind of jumped out of the lower. I always thought I lived in the Midwest, but I was soon to discover that Michigan is the Midwest. And I was kind of in uh, like Middle South somewhere and didn't really exist except for on top of Texas. So uh, <laughs> it was a big leap for me at that time to go to Michigan. It was a very big school. I think there was probably 60,000 um, at that time. Um you know, attending Michigan and, you know, just the opportunity to be able to have the, you know, best of sort of everything in the humanities there. And that was also a time where most people wanted to go into the business school or go into engineering, um, pre-law, that kind of thing at Michigan. Um, and it was highly, highly competitive school with mostly, you know, uh, Northeastern and Michigan, Chicago, uh, kind of background students. So I was really sort of an anomaly there and which I sort of used to my advantage because I thought, Hmm, humanities is not that big in that school. And, you know, the choice of literature and art history really gave me an understanding about how to look with curiosity into the world from the past, present, and sort of future as you get to science fiction reading. Um, But also art history was amazing. You know, it's amazing what you can do when you're looking visually Visually at a piece and breaking it down to understand, you know, what someone is trying to say to you and then to be able to articulate it through, oh my God, 30 page papers and research papers, you know, sort of an opinion. So, you know, developed critical thinking. I always knew that, okay, you know, while I'm not going to be a professor, it would be a launching pad to something different for me in the 
sort of apparel or design world of some sort. Yeah. (laughs) I love that takeaway and that perspective that you had on studying something that not, that isn't directly related to the field that you're in now. I had a very similar experience when I went to school. I went with the intention on working in fashion in some sense, and I studied journalism. And my biggest takeaways from my experience as a writer, as a journalist, was just learning how to be curious and how to look at the world with open eyes and really question everything. And that curiosity has been the best thing that I've been able to apply to my job as a buyer. So I really love that you were able to take that from your experience with art history. For this episode, Maddie and I decided to do things a little bit different and have some sidebars in between our interview with Lynn, since we know this episode is a little bit longer, but we think that her story is so worth hearing all the way through. And she has so many incredible teachings to share, as well as experiences that are so inspiring. So Maddie and I are going to have little coffee chat conversations on the side to help you guys get through this episode and relate it back to experiences that we've had and also reasons why we started this podcast in the first place. So I know I shared a little bit about my experience with studying something other than a business or fashion major in school, but I know Maddie also had a similar experience with why studying something outside of the box can be potentially very helpful in breaking into this industry as well. So Maddie, let's hear a little bit about your story. Definitely. So I know we've talked about in past episodes how both Julie and I found that we had an interest in fashion, but our schools didn't necessarily offer like that kind of, I guess, track for us that we could even possibly pursue. But when I went to school, I knew um, right off the bat that I wanted to do something creative. I didn't exactly know what I wanted to do, but it had to be something in the creative industry because that's what I've always been passionate about. So I ended up majoring in visual studies, which was a lot of fine arts and art history and visual studies like studies of perception basically at Penn and it was fabulous there was only about 13 people in the whole major so all of our classes were really small and we had so much opportunity to have conversations with each other and learn from each other and I thought that having that experience being so similar to things I was passionate about made me open to basically pursuing anything in the creative field generally. So even though I wasn't studying fashion, like I knew that I either wanted to go into marketing, advertising, fashion, anything that had to do with like exciting visual things. So that was my experience with liberal arts education. I was so grateful to also get to take classes in across so many other disciplines that were totally unrelated to what I was studying. Like I had to take statistics classes, psychology classes, um, and I loved all of them. So this is just a reminder to all of you guys that you do not have to study what you end up doing with your life because there are so many different paths you can take and things that you can learn from your education that I guess doesn't really seem super apparent now, but could transfer over in the future. 
we get a lot of questions from our followers and our listeners about how to break into the fashion industry and what people should study in school. So just want to drive this point home based on my experience, Maddie's experience and Lynn's experience, which is a lot more impressive than ours at this point in our life. You really aren't strictly meant to follow one path. There's no answer and there's no like you have to do this or else you won't be able to make it. It's much more about letting your passion kind of drive you and understanding that having a breadth of experience even outside of the industry can only help broaden your perspective and give you something that makes you different to bring to the table. And that is what industry leaders are looking for right now and the people that they're hiring. Retweet on that. So as we were saying, we're just going to break up this episode with little anecdotes or exciting things that we wanted to add in or compliment Lynn's story. So I hope you guys like this format and we're going to get back to Lynn and her story now. And then you went to Columbia grad and studied architecture. So what was that yeah, connection okay. there? Well, there was an in-between there. Okay. So <laughs> <laughs> from, I know I have a long life, girls. <laughs> so from Michigan, um, I thought, you know, there was always an intent to go back and, and run the family business. You know, I really was intrigued with retail and especially, you know, the curation and the taste level that my grandfather and my father had. Um, but I thought, you know, what might be useful for me is to spend a year in New York and work with the buyers that are, you know, the vendors that they had always worked with and to somehow get some experience. So I ended up moving to New York and becoming sort of the assistant to Italian menswear um, representative. And through that, I started to look um, really initially at the world through the the eyes of an entrepreneur and started to discover, you know, the approach of a very small business. I mean, he represented maybe, you know, six or seven lines of Italian menswear, you know, leather jackets, luggage, things like that. And my father's stores and stores like them bought from him. And at the same time, I was able to kind of look at some of the women's wear vendors that were doing amazingly, you know, creative work, whether it was through Irish linen blouses or or hand-knit sweaters, you know, that came from cottage industry out of the UK. And what I, I realized was I could do that. <laughs> it was about, I was about 23 and I was like, what am I in the assistant for? I can do this. And so another friend of mine and I started a business where we uh, worked with uh, designers out of the UK. Uh, we had four or five um, hand sweater vendors out of Wales and the north of Scotland. And then we also had uh, Tricker Shoes, which was a very famous maker of men's shoes but they were willing to make women's needlepoint shoes and doctor bags. And so we have this really wonderful collection of, um, 
uh, UK designed product. And um, interestingly enough, uh, we became Ralph Lauren's biggest provider of handknit sweaters. <laughs> no way. Wow. Yes, that because, is... you, know, you know, at that time, you know, he was very much into this vision of the, you know, like European gentry on the countryside, et cetera. And everything we owned or sold um, was sort of filling that dream for him. So we became a big, very big provider for him. Um, so, but during that time, and it was a time, it was a financial time that was not dissimilar to 2008, you know, where it was mm-hmm. a, a mortgage crisis. Then it was called savings and loan crisis. And it was an alternative banking system, right? And it was predominantly in the sort of wealthy South. It was Texas, Oklahoma, Arkansas, you know, the Midwest, and where there was a lot of money and it was a lot of oil money. And all of a sudden, the savings and loans went down. So many of our, you know, customers were affected by that. And also Ralph, you know, was, you know, affected strongly by that, by that, because at that point he was not a public company. He was an entrepreneur at that point. And so I thought, okay, what is it that is my next curiosity? You know, I was able luckily to sell my business back to the designers that were um, providing the product. And um, I thought, you know, what I would really love to do is to do something in retail store development or at the very least do some sort of preservation, you know, of old buildings like Ralph Lauren's mansion that he now has his largest, you know, and most, I think, profoundly uh, visual marketing tool that he has in his case is his beautiful stores on Madison Avenue. And um, so Columbia offered that program uh, and it was a, it was a fairly, aggressive program of a year and a half that was called the real estate development program and it taught finance and and development and it was through the architecture school so not only was i able to you know really think about you know how i might have a new approach to retail you know development in stores but also learning so much about with with a great wealth of of teaching from professors that had historical backgrounds who had touch points of my original art history sort of background and at the same time learning a whole new uh kind of world for me which is financial modeling and and you know putting really uh spreadsheets together that would actually fund finance etc any kind of endeavor that you know, I would entertain going forward. So it was a really interesting time because by the time I got out, uh, the vacancy rate in real estate, commercial real estate in New York City is about 92%. I mean, Times Square was, yeah. So Times Square is virtually empty and you can see papers like flying down, even though banks like Morgan Stanley, et cetera, had built these brand new, beautiful buildings, you know, they were just vacant, you know, at that point. So, um, given the hard financial times, you know, at that point. So I went right back to my source and I said, which was my father. And I said to him, okay, 
you know, here I am, what, what, what am I going to do? And it was really a rhetorical question because, you know, what I have learned, um, very early in my life is don't come to somebody with a problem, come with a solution. So when I ask a question that deals with a challenge, it's really a thinking pause kind of question that I need to answer myself. So I went back to the resources that I um, had built during my little business, and one of which was Ralph Lauren. And again, it was a small company at this point, um, but I walked in for you know what we all know today is informational interviews, right? <laughs> so you know, I went in for an informational interview and got the sort of finger pointed at my nose saying, young lady, you should have always worked here. What were you doing? What were you thinking? <laughs> and I was thinking inside my brain, thank goodness I had the cure, the curiosity, as we say, and the willingness to kind of strike it out, you know, on my own, because it was my first kind of step, which, you know, I think we'll probably talk about later is entrepreneurship, is understanding how difficult that is and what you need to do and, and how you need to be thinking, you know, when you put yourself on the mat like that. <laughs> It's Jules and Maddie again. So Lynn just told us that one of her biggest pieces of advice is don't come to someone with a problem, but come to them with a solution. So I think that this is super important and has been really important in both of our jobs um, in that when there's an issue, it has been really helpful, I guess, to try and look into that issue and then present it to your boss as something that you realize is a problem and then give proactive steps on how to fix that problem. And I think that's just a really good life lesson or takeaway. Something to remember is that exact quote, because it is super important to take initiative yourself and kind of try and figure out what the next steps are without someone else having to step in and tell you those next steps. Julia, have you had a similar experience at work? Yes. I feel like in my life, in my job, in my current job, in any internships that I've had, it's always been so helpful to follow that piece of advice, which my dad also always told me, which is you don't just see a problem and expect other people to fix it. If you want to stand out in your career, in your role, what you need to do is see these problems and immediately start brainstorming what different ways are to fix them. And that doesn't mean you need to have all the answers. That doesn't mean that you have to be correct in your solution. It just means that you need to be problem solving and thinking about those things because eventually one day you will be right. But your boss right now especially doesn't doesn't expect you to be a genius and perfect and so good at what you're doing right off the bat and um, coming up with all of these incredible solutions. They just want to know that you're thinking about them. I agree with that. It's like your boss, if your boss sees that you're a proactive person, they're more likely to trust you with, I guess, issues in the future. Even if you're not right about them, it still shows that you are thinking about possible solutions and want to like fix whatever the issue is on your own. So that was a fabulous quote by Lynn. And we're going to get back into her story. So 
at that period of time, um, I hope you don't mind. I'll kind of swing into the Tommy Hilfiger story. Oh, if you please, go for it. please do. I you want to first say you that she from 23 yeah, years old. I am so incredibly impressed. I don't know how you started a company like one year out of college because Julie and I are nowhere near that point yes. in our lives. But well, Maddie, I just wanted to, to have a brainstorming. I know. Session. I just wanted to put that out there before we and continued. I, I was going to say, oh, I'm sorry. And what are you doing right now as you're interviewing me? for our podcast I would say that um you've already gotten started with that thank you um so anyway so what was interesting is um you know uh at the at that point the CEO was Peter Strom a lovely man and he said I want you to go visit you know our president of women's wear and at that time the president of women's wear was Edwin Lewis and lo and behold we all come from somewhere he was my dad's road rep in Oklahoma so he used to sell (laughs) he used to sell him Ralph Lauren you know, apparel when he had the big fat ties and, you know, kind of that. So Edwin looked at me and said, and, and asked me all about my real estate career. And I thought, well, this is funny because Peter Strong just told me the most expensive endeavor he had ever made was developing the mansion. And it cost him about $14,000 a day to have the doors open at that time. <laughs> <laughs> so they weren't interested in doing that. He wanted me to go back into the apparel. So Edwin kept asking me about that. And I thought, now this is odd. Um, But we had a great talk, chit chat, talk to you soon. Thank you so much. I walked out the door. And at that time for Columbia, you had to have a thesis in order to graduate with your master's in that that area. And so I had just completed it. And I got this call from him. And he said, I'm not where you think I am. You know, would you consider coming back and working with me. And I said, well, on what if you're not there? And he said, well, there's four of us that have hopped over to the other side, meaning they left Ralph Lauren and they bought this company called Tommy Hilfiger, which I had never heard of. Uh, That's crazy. crazy. And they had bought it out of bankruptcy, basically. And I was like, well, what do you want me to do? And he said, look, you know, you have a graduate school background, you know, it's pretty rare in the apparel business at that time, you know, that you even, you, you kind of graduated from high school, but it's very much of a street oriented business. So, you know, even going to college at that point, you know, a lot of people thought it wasn't necessary because you could make a lot of money in the apparel business just by, you know, street smarts. So he said, you know, we're buying this company. We want to create retail stores. You know, we need to to really think about, you know, how to do this, you know, from a financial perspective, as well as brand name recognition. And I thought to myself, I can't even pronounce it. (laughs) There's not going to be name recognition. Although he had this incredible billboard in Times Square, which you may or may not have read about over time, because it's over time become probably one of the most audacious advertising campaigns and is actually in history as such um, that it said first you knew RL, then you knew CK, then you knew PE, meaning Perry Ellis, and now you definitely know Tommy Hilfiger. And people are like, who is that? And what does he do? Because it didn't say anything about it. 
so that was sort of the kind of relaunch of the name. And I signed on and I said, you know, okay, you know, why not? You know, why? <laughs> there was probably, there was one floor, there was probably maybe 20 people working there and they had sales at what was then called Burdines, which is now Macy's. So, you know, part of Macy's out of Florida. Love that for us. Yeah. <laughs> so there I was in a broom closet with, you know, behind a conference room where these four guys who now have probably become the most famous investors, brand developers of all time. And that would have been Joel Horowitz, um, who then, you know, um, became the CEO and, and sold Tommy Hilfiger and then became the CEO of Diane von Furstenberg, you know, at the end of the day. Uh, Silas Chow and Lawrence Stroll, who then went on to be the heads of Michael Kors, right? <laughs> And then you were so cool. at a table of big <laughs> players over there. I mean, they're all big players, but at that time, it was kind of like they would sit and like dream about what Tommy was going to be. And then, of course, you know, Tommy himself. So, you know. So at the end of the day, you know, I think that what's really important in that team, and I'm sure that we'll talk about this, um, is what are the elements of a team and why are they important, right? And so what I learned very early on watching these gentlemen, you know, talk about and dream about their business is they had put together a team, whether they knew it or not, had skill sets that were so different from each other that it was the actual all-star team of all time. So you had Silas Chow, who was a deep sourcing man or a manufacturer overseas, but also incredible financial acumen. You had Lawrence Stroll, who's probably one of the best merchandisers in the world that I've ever seen. I mean, he was able to help develop product and plans like no one I've ever, you know, worked with. Uh, Joel Horowitz, deep in sourcing. You know, he could source anything at any time. You know, um, Tommy. Tommy was interesting because he had a very clear vision and point of view of what he wanted to present. And that was a modern version of Ralph Lauren at affordable pricing. And so you had the oversized, you know, button down shirt. You had the quintessential khaki pant called the public pant, you know, that was the best fitting plant pant of all time. And even Ralph was jealous of, you know, that. It was very simple, very, very simple. And if you were to think about what you need to have for retail today, it's like, keep it simple, keep it clean, you know, not the way it looks, but what you have to offer. So people understand what it is. Right. So, mm -hmm. um, yeah. And so the one thing, and then Edwin Lewis, by far the best salesperson in the world, best connections, you know, great relationships. So you had sales, merchandising, you had someone who was in design and, and I'll talk about marketing in a minute. And then you had finance. I mean, it was all right there. And it was the brainchild of these guys. So you knew. I wish I was there to see everyone in action. Well, and then when you're thinking about it now, anyone who's in a founding position, right? You want to create a team where you're compatible 
but you each have your own skill sets. And that was my first, I mean, I was 28 years old looking at this going, wow, you know, so they weren't ever on top of each other. They all had their mission. The one thing that was the most incredible about Tommy himself that was different from, you know, Ralph and Calvin Klein even, et cetera, is that he was willing to be, at, not willing, but loving being out with his customer. You know, personal appearance, as time went on, personal appearances, we'd have 8,000 people there because he was willing to put a face and had the courage to put his face to his product, right? Yeah, which so, still is very recognizable today. Like it's right. such a big part of the brand. <laughs> That's right. And so as it, as it came to me as a 28-year-old, you know, I think that, you know, I would suggest um, just what you were saying, Julia, about curiosity in, from your point of view. It's also an openness for what I call lunar moments. And those moments are, have, you know, you're sitting there, you're so open to what may come that suddenly you see it, right? So that you're not planning your course so distinctly, but that you remain and have space for new ideas, new directions to come, right? Mm-hmm. So for me, all of a sudden, I thought, wow. This is a real opportunity. And those guys gave me the opportunity because of my educational background to be the lead in raising money to bring um, Tommy to the public markets. You know, back then we and raised you were 28 money. 28 years old? I was 28 years old. That's wild. Yes. And you were the only woman on the team, say, which we're going to have to. What was that like being the only <laughs> woman in the like? team of. That was such like. Impressive well, men. I had a lot of late nights waiting outside the door for my turn. But like I said, so when you're in an entrepreneurial uh, venture, you have to be willing to take the risk. It's not a calculated career move, so to speak. You know, you have to jump in. Um, So anyway, so as I was saying, you know, the openness to take on responsibility, um, I'm probably unlike what some of the issues that have been described that women don't take it on. You know, they say, I don't have the skills to do it. I, I, you know, I'm maybe not ready for this job. Well, I never thought that. I was like, sure, yes, I'll I'll be a part of the IPO team. (laughs) I've never done that before. But you know what? You're going to figure it out and you're going to learn it. And so we did. And, um, you know, Tommy went public with a great story. And luckily, I was part of the storytelling. And that was how we were going to develop Tommy into a lifestyle brand and we're going to do it profitably and we were going to do it in a way that had not been done before. So, you know, I think what was also great is that these men were open to creative ideas. And so if you came to them with one, um, they seriously considered it. And I got the opportunity to actually put my real estate background into play because we were in an historically designated building. It was the old engineering building on 39th Street. And we only had one floor. But the rest of it, I looked at and I thought, you know what? This really has great bones, right? So at the time, one of the financial plans that we had to grow the business was licensing, right? 
so licensing by definition is renting your name out to product or to services or, you know, in some intellectual property in order to get a royalty for it, you know, and to expand your revenue through royalty income. Well, so they looked at me and said, you have a graduate degree. You must know how to do contracts. So can you do licensing for us? And I thought, okay, sure. (laughs) I'm not a lawyer, but that's okay. You know, sure. And so what I quickly realized as I was going to different partners, right, potential partners, is I would walk into their showrooms and they would have a list of brands from Donald Duck to Nautica, to other, other, you know, whatever it was, as a list of all the neckwear they may have and all the labels. And I thought, gee, you know, are we going to have Tommy Hilfiger just as part of that list? Or are we special in this sort of, you know, how am I going to grow a lifestyle brand if I'm just a list on 15, 20 different showrooms of different products. And, you know, many companies do that. Liz Claiborne did that. Calvin Klein does that. You know, most companies do that. So I went back to uh, who I think is a true visionary was Joel Horowitz. He was really a great mentor for me by virtue of the fact he let me run with him. And I said, you know, here's a financial plan to buy this building. And what we're going to do is we're going to find our licensed partners and we're going to have them construct a showroom. We're going to have them create a team for Tommy Hilfiger and we're going to sell all of our product out of this building. (laughs) And he laughed and he was like, right. (laughs) And I said, no, seriously, I think we can do this, you know. And so, you know, he took a huge leap. And at that time, you know, the building wasn't that expensive. So we ended up buying the building and I was doing sale, what was called sale leasebacks. So while we bought the building, I had leases out to all the licensees for all 16 floors of the building by that, by the end of probably five years, right? So we had everything that Tommy didn't make. And the only thing we didn't, the only thing we actually made was men's sportswear. We didn't make anything else, nothing. So that meant suits, dress shirts, neckwear, socks, belts, ties. And then when we went into denim, Tommy Jeans was a licensee. It was fragrance. You know, we were Estee Lauder's very first license, very first outside their company. Wow. Yep, relationship. And I want to say here and now, probably the greatest gentleman on this earth is Leonard Lauder. I mean, he was in his 60s and he and I did that deal together. And I was only at the time 30, 30 something. And he gave me great respect. And we worked on that deal. It fell apart 14 times and we got that deal done. And Tommy and Tommy Girl alone, just those two fragrances was a $350 million business. It was incredible, but this man put, and he is very, you know, um, supportive of women and a great teacher 
great mentor, just a gift. Everywhere, anyone he would meet, he would write a personal thank you note to. Or he would see a specialist in the store, he would write her a really nice little sticky note saying something kind about her. So he was a great leader. I just wanted to say that as a side. What a special thing that you got to work with him. That's incredible. Yeah, so special. <laughs> yeah, he's just got a book out. So, you know, it's he's a really interesting, very, very interesting and generous person. Anyway, so the point being is, is over the course of, I would say, probably six, eight, ten years, the building on 39th Street housed every single one of Tommy's products. And someone like at that time, you know, the chairman of Macy's was Terry Lundgren, right? He would walk the building and see every single one of Tommy's products in one place. And all of the companies, you know, that participated in, in, you know, the licensed programs made a lot of money because we helped them sell that product. I had a team that designed the product for all the licensees. We did all the advertising for the licensees, but they, they manufactured and distributed and had a showroom there. So the company itself made royalty, made advertising dollars, and actually paid for our space and marketing budget. So it was really, you know, such a time that risk-taking became profitable, really profitable in the sense that, you know, trusting in creative ideas, trusting in young kind of innovated approaches, you know, was, you know, I think ended up being sort of the mantra for success at that time. I think You're that's insane. definitely something we can so cool. all learn from now too with everything going on and we'll dive into that. I, I think Maddie and I are very curious to hear your perspective on how retail is going to change due to just recent COVID instances and all of the bankruptcies and everything that's been going on and the way the consumer has been shopping. But the fact that I feel personally in my career, people have been more willing to learn and accept younger, innovative ideas because everyone knows that there needs to be a change. It's interesting that you felt the same way back when you were working on Tommy. And it seems times were comparable in a sense. Yes. You know, I think that retail, you know, and, and I'm sure you want to go into different directions, but I think the, the, opportunity and the challenge of the retail business is that it always needs to evolve. Always. It's not just because, you know, there's a 2008 crisis or there's this horrible, you know, pandemic happening, et cetera. It's the fact is, is those companies that are going to be successful always are having to be innovative, right? And people are also shopping in such different ways than they used to. Like people discover their brands through social media or through blog posts or other new ways that they weren't discovering these brands like in the past. So I feel like just the whole landscape is constantly changing. Well, Maddie, I think also the eyeballs are changing. I mean, I think that, you know, over the course of the last maybe two to three years, the biggest white space, I call it white space or open space of people who are looking are young men. 
I mean, it's, they've become much more, you know, aware of fashion and product, much more confident in their choices, you know, um, they're constantly searching for new companies. They're willing to, they have some disposable income, you know, if there's, they're still, you know, they're still single later on, you know, in their lives. Right. And realizing that they don't have to look like everybody else, you know? And so I, you know, it's anecdotally, you know, I have, you know, young, young men in my family and I'm seeing new brands arriving at my door all the time. And I get really excited about that, you know, to see, you know, to see what, you know, these guys are doing. And there's a lot more, you know, founder, founder businesses that, you know, sort of are addressing that, Um, you know, yeah. I definitely serve as stylist to my guy friends and they've been so excited recently, especially with all of the sales going on right now to shop new brands, any brands that they've been finding themselves, they'll send to me for approval, but it is really fun to see them finding this confidence now and wanting to express themselves with style a little bit differently and recognizing like, Ooh, this, this looks good on me, or this is my vibe and not just dressing the same as everyone else. I really like that you've seen that as a white space opportunity because I think that it definitely is. Right. And I think you're right. I mean, I wouldn't use that language, but you're right in that expressing my vibe. You know, I think that gives opportunity for both genders or how, whatever the gender kind of preference, you know, is, is to express themselves. And so, you know, I think that, um, my, you know, this is an overused word, but I believe in it. As long as the design and the point of view is authentic to the person that is creating it. You know, it, 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 you know the thing is, is that you look at someone like a Tommy or you look like someone like Rebecca Taylor, for example, that was one of my brands at Kelwood, or even Sam for that matter, is they have a really clear point of view of what they want to have on offer. You know, and uh, and it's amazing to me how successful, how successful that they can be when they, you know, really express a strong point of view to a consumer, a specific consumer. You can't be everything to everyone, but you have yeah. to do something that cuts through the noise. Maddie and Jules here. Oh my God, how impressive is Lynn? I cannot imagine what it felt like to sit at that table with Tommy and all of those men and be able to see a vision of what today's Tommy Hilfiger looks like when she couldn't even initially pronounce his name. Maddie and I are now going to introduce the next section in which Lynn talks about her transition in a post-Tommy world for her. But before we get into that, we wanted to talk about our own pivotal moments in our career. Lynn will mention how she felt a little bit lost without the big name Tommy Hilfiger behind her after she realized it was time to leave. So Maddie, what do you think is most important when it comes to pivotal moments in your life and in your career? 
I feel like something that Lynn mentioned is that it's super important to just be open to change and open to, I guess, new opportunities that you might not be expecting. So I think I've lived my life that way, kind of, or at least trying to be very open to things that are thrown your way. Like, obviously, it's important to go out and go after what you want, but sometimes there'll be these opportunities that come up like in 2020 with Corona and Julie and I starting our podcast, for example, we absolutely were not thinking about this as being something that was even a possibility prior to Corona. But when we were furloughed and sitting on our couches with nothing to do, I think both of us had that same feeling of how can we like take this negative time and do something productive and important, I guess, with it. And so that's how the podcast was born. And I think that it is so important to have that open mindset to new opportunities and just life generally. So Julia, what do you think about that? I totally agree. I think it even brings it back to the initial point that Lynn made about when she studied something that was outside of the box and how that brought on opportunities that she didn't expect. And life isn't a series of check boxes that you have to check off in order to get to the place where you want to be. Being op- Having goals is very important, but being open to and flexible to seeing what helps you achieve those goals, I think is even more important because that's what's going to give you the opportunity to be fluid with your life and take advantage of opportunities that you may have never expected because those are when the best things happen is what my experience has been, especially with hot takes and with Macy's, honestly, it wasn't expected for me to end up in this role that I have now. And it's been one of the best learning experiences. Granted, it's been a crazy ride since we started, but I think being able to be flexible with everything that's gone on and make the most in every way possible has made us both not only better at our careers, if I could say so, but also just um, more resilient to things that come at us. I completely Unexpected things that come at us. So now we'll let Lynn take it away with her experience. And she definitely has some even better advice to give. You just mentioned Kelwood, and that is what we wanted to ask you about next. So can you tell us about when you knew it was time to move on from Tommy and like, I guess, the lessons you took and then that next experience and what you were able to do there? Sure. Um, well, it was a, it was time to move on from Tommy. One is, is I think that, you know, um, you stay somewhere where you're you really are enjoying and passionate about what you're doing, but at the same time that you're learning new things, right? And I think that Tommy as a company had reached its precipice in that way because, you know, they we ended up becoming a little bit more political and internally than we had been um, sort of in the past. The partners had moved on, uh, Silas and Lawrence had moved on to uh, Michael Kors by that time. Joel had left 
she, you know, he's, she, they had all been successful and we sort of had some new, you know, management come in. And I think that was really hard, you know, for the company, for Tommy himself, you know, cause he was there and kind of the last of the, you know, standing people within the company. And although we were with him, it was sort of a place where, you know, the market had changed. We were not one of three. We're now one of 50 in terms of brands, right? So we were originally, it was Ralph Lauren, Nautica, and Tommy. And then all of a sudden it was, you know, an influx of urban brands, et cetera. So you reach and you're really, you know, if you're in the retail arena, especially if, you know, Macy's, et cetera, you know what happens to a brand when it becomes, you know, promotional or ubiquitous and too many points of distribution. And, you know, we were just pushing that that time. And so the company actually went up for sale in 2005. And I, you know, I was definitely prior to that sort of in line for kind of the next step and the Tommy and that would have been you know a much bigger job but seeing that this was going to be a sale that's when I said you know what I have done everything that I possibly can for this company and it's been a tremendous uh, part of my life and uh, I was able you know we haven't even talked about this my entire team almost entire team of leadership underneath me were women and it wasn't by design it was by you know vision loyalty skill set you know the ability to create a huge community amongst a lot of different partners you know um it was just kind of all of our time we'd been there i had had zero turnover i mean everyone had been there together from day one and so you know I kind of went to the CEO then and said, you know, I will do everything I can to, to create a great sale for you guys, but it's time for me to go on to the next thing. And, you know, interestingly enough, again, there was an in-between. So, you know, leaving a big organization like that, I will be honest with you. It, I thought, woohoo, you know, now it's time and I'm going to go. There was a tremendous loss of identity and power. You know, all of a sudden, I wasn't Lynn Shanahan of Tommy Hilfiger. I was just Lynn Shanahan. (laughs) And the quote-unquote just, you know, sort of was resonating with me like, oh, my God, you know. And, um, you know, there was always input, especially from other women. You have to create a story. You have to have something, you know, that you're going on to the next. And internally, I kept questioning why. You know, I've had a great story. Do I really need another great story, you know? And that's when I first, you know, felt like, hmm, I guess I'm part of a group of executive women, right? Because I was getting a lot of advice, you know, good advice, you know, from women. But I just thought, okay, this is a different life. So there's a lot to leaving a big company, whether it's by choice or whether it's if you don't have a choice, you know, you're... You sort of have to plan for that. And I actually did have a plan. <laughs> of course I you went. did. You always have a plan, <laughs> a next move. Yeah, I was like, okay, I had an interim plan. And it was actually, you know, um, again, I had my, my father flew up for lunch from Oklahoma. I was like, what? 
you know, he said, I have three, I have three, you know, kind of steps of wisdom for you, you know? And I said, okay, you know, I, I love that, you know, sure. And one of them was when you've decided to leave, which I had decided to leave, leave that day. Don't hang around, you know, when you're, when you're done, you're done, you know? So that was one. Number two was give back. It's time for you to give back. And that means, you know, get involved in, you know, not-for-profits, you know, you've been so busy in your life, but now, you know, you've been successful. It's time for that now. And it's time for you personally to do it, not through a company. And then the third one was, and this is kind of funny, develop a hobby. <laughs> I, thought, I don't even know what that word means, you know, like develop a Something hobby. that you do for fun? I was like, okay, what, I'm going to knit? what am I you know what am I going to do so you know I sort of banked it you know kind of banked it thought fine you know this is what I'm going to do but you know there was a there was definitely something in the works and honestly Maddie one came before the other the C2 group was founded prior to going to Kelwood because my entire team at Tommy uplifted yeah and, you know, we were all, we were all leaving at the same time because as you may know, the story is a European partner bought Tommy Hilfiger and Macy's became the licensee. You know, that was a, that was a real move. So anyway, so we all got together and decided somehow we were all going to be working together, right? That. It, you know, everyone had a diverse skill set. I had a head of licensing. I had a head of design. I had a head of marketing. You know, I had all of that. And I thought, you know, what would be really great for all of these companies that were not startups, but, you know, $10 million and, uh, you know, they don't have, the one thing they can't afford is the experience to really get them to grow. So why don't we, you know, form a group and we will be pseudo, not investors, but we're going to be drop-in management. We're going to tell them, listen, you can afford us. Which they really could. I mean, just at a very, we'll do a very small retainer. And then we'll take a small percentage of our sales that we create for you. So we had skin in the game, right? Well, it was fantastic. You know, we had immediate reception from companies like Airstream, right? A RV vehicle that was the top design. It was designed by very famous architects. They were doing a rebrand and a relaunch. So we had them. And that was very cool to have in our portfolio. And then I went to Finland and spoke to Miriam Echo, which you know, it has been an incredible part of my history, but also design. And we ended up being the group that relaunched Mary Mecco into the United States market, um, built all of their stores, you know, helped in terms of merchandising and designing the product, um, selling the product at wholesale. And, you know, that was one of our great accomplishments because I think the team was so engaged with Tommy all the way along in design and brand development that here we were handed a design firm that, you know, had an incredible founder 
um, Army Ratia, who I admire so greatly, and I've known her, uh, which launched this brand in 1951 in Finland as a countrywide initiative or movement to bring color back to an otherwise gray country that had just gotten their independence from Russia, had lost a lot of men in the war, and became a very famous country sort of icon and representation of great design. So anyway, so, you know, the C2 group, you know, was founded as a group of women. It was all women. <laughs> and, I love that. Yeah. And actually has continued to this day, even though uh, sort of my next step was Hellwood came to me and, or a private equity group came to me and said, listen, you know, we have 50 brands that you know, uh, we need to have a CEO over. Um, we're working, our signature brand is Vince. And we need someone who can really sort of corral the Kelwood brands and while we're doing the Vince. And it was really interesting. It took them six months to convince me to go because it was brands I'd never heard of, a lot of them. You know, it was kind of like, although you have maybe XOXO, um, you know, they had, uh, you know, they did, have, they, they had just bought Rebecca Taylor, mm-hmm. you know, suffice it to say a lot of them were, you know, private label brands and, uh, a woman, Jill Granoff, um, at the time was the CEO and she was wanting to focus solely on Vince and she was very smart. She gave me a plane ticket. And she said, I want you to visit all of our facilities. I want you to see what Kelwood actually was. And here's what I came back with. I went to the former headquarters um, in St. Louis. And half the building was empty. And people were there, you know, with a solemn look on their face. You know, not excited about their jobs. They had been there for 30 years. And I thought, hmm. You know, and then I went to L.A. and there was this big compound of, uh, there must have been probably 300 sewers, maybe 500 sewers, um, making sample lines all over for all this private label. Uh, There was a team out there that no one really paid attention to and didn't have any identity. And so, you know, I kind of flew back to New York and there were four or five buildings with a lot of Kelwood brands and those as well but no one there was no sense of community they had no identity whatsoever and so jill said well what do you think (laughs) and i said i'll take it and she was like you're kidding and i said no i'll take it because for me it was about people and it was about creating a sort of an umbrella mission and vision so that all these people can come back to their work every single day and love being there. And we were in the hole dramatically, really dramatically. And we were yeah, it not, sounds like it. We were totally not favored by the private equity firm. I mean, they were absolutely like, this is an albatross for us. We want to get rid of this. And I thought, nope. You know, I have 2,000 people here that need a reason to come to work every day, and we need to figure this out. And within 18 months, we did roadshows, we repositioned all the brands so that they fit in a 
contemporary silo, a moderate silo, and a junior silo. We had marketing programs. I mean, mind you, we had no money to spend, but it was all sweat equity from these 2,000 people. And we turned that company from a minus 20 million into a, you know, plus 10 within 18 months. And people were like... Yippee. I mean, it was a huge achievement in terms of just relationships and people would come to work every day and talk about the brands they were working on. So it always isn't about the product because I came from a high end apparel and I was probably working on something that cost about a dollar fifty to make, you know, and it's not always about that. So curiosity and creative thinking is also about how do you make people feel good about what they do? And that was Kelwood. It's Jules and Maddie again. So we just wanted to stop here and talk to you guys about something so important that Lynn was just talking about, which is being passionate about what you do and how that can impact everyone around you. So Lynn's experience with Kelwood was that she wanted to help these people who weren't passionate about what they do and kind of give them a sense of purpose in their job. And I've experienced that even at Macy's and just having bosses and mentors who are super passionate about what they do and how that kind of trickles down and makes everyone else around them equally as passionate or at least driven to do their best at their job. But Julia, I want to hear about if you've had a similar experience or any experience with this so far in your life. I've definitely experienced this. And I think passion is what energizes everyone. And it's so easily seen and felt when someone's passionate about what they do, even in the way they speak about it, which again, like I just said, is very energizing to people on their team and the people around them. If I can bring it back to the podcast, because obviously we bring everything back to the podcast. The reason we started this, yeah, was because we felt really lost and we wanted to do something with our time that felt productive and proactive. But once we honed in on the value of wanting to give back to other people who were also passionate about this industry, because it's something that we're so passionate about, that's what's driven the entire thing. And that's why we keep doing it and why we love doing it, because we love connecting with people like Lynn. But we also love giving back to people like all of you, all of our fabulous listeners who maybe want to be a part of this industry or maybe are looking to find an industry which they're also super passionate about and just want some advice about how to get there. And it doesn't have to be fashion. It can be banking for all we care. It's more about the journey and about finding something that makes you want to get up in the morning and makes you really excited. And it's so incredible that Lynn felt that way about what she did enough to be able to take a company that was struggling so much and turn it around. And the thing that motivated her to do that was giving this passion back to the people that worked there. So thank you, Lynn, for sharing that part of your story. And now we'll get back to the rest of it. It was, you know, loving what you're doing and passionate about, you know, the path to get there. And, you know, when you say it back, I think, oh, wow. You know, (laughs) it's like the storytelling of it is really about, in my view, in summary, is do what you love. 
the money will follow. Will it always follow? No. Will you have to struggle? <laughs> yes. But it's like, it's not worth, you know, you, you work to live. You don't live to work, you know? So it's, it really is that. Agreed. I completely agree. Yes. I think there's a real time that, you know, in your life, 25, 26, 27, when you're doing that check in your mind is, am I on a path that I love or is my life going the way that I want it to go or et cetera. And I say to that, you are still in the learning phase. You know, you are so, this is the opportunity to kind of look and to feel and to question, do I like this or do I not like this? Or it's not a time for decisions, right? It just isn't. You have, you have life, you know, ahead of you. And look, I'm not trying to make it, you know, simplistic because there are all other factors. There's economic factors to be sure, you know, and there are, you know, um, opportunities potentially to get it to get a school or not to get a school or you know just to find there's something though that can can lead you to a more fulfilled life for sure I think Um, this is why I love doing this because I feel like I'm getting a free mentorship session right now with (laughs) you and it's incredible I wish I had my notepad with me Well, I'm hoping I'm passing, you know, you pay it forward. I, you know, I, my parents, my friends had always said, you're an athlete. You have to play field hockey. You have no rhythm. You can't listen to music. You don't even know how to sing. Right. And so just by pure happenstance, you know, I was like, from a medical perspective, you know, I had had an operation that I couldn't run and I was a competitive tennis player for three months. And so the nutritionist said to me, you know, well, listen, I train ballroom dancers. So, you know, I'm going to call up and I'm going to have you take dance. <laughs> so I was laughing. All I could think of was cruise ship, right? <laughs> I thought, cruise ship, lonely hearts, you know, ooh, I'm going to have to. <laughs> and so I said, all right, fine. And so I started and I mean, it was like a drag. And so I look back at those 10 years and six world championships later <laughs> and think anybody can do anything. Oh. Right? Oh my gosh. So yeah, wow. so I called my dad and I said, I think I have a hobby. It's just expensive. <laughs> that must have been one of his most proud moments where you Yeah. So did I have his about advice. 10 of my, you know, ex- my executive women friends are all ballroom dancers now. So diving into, we'll, we'll take a turn from the ballroom dancing. Yeah. Um, I just had to get back to the hobby. You know, everyone can have a hobby. Important. Everyone find your hobbies. Uh, yeah. Everyone needs to find their hobbies. It, it is very important to have somewhat of a balance eventually and find something right. that really you enjoy and you just, it's just there <laughs> for you to enjoy it. And ballroom dancing sounds like you're killing it there. Well, we'll see. <laughs> So the last thing we're going to leave you with is our little game that we like to play with all of our CEOs, which basically I'm going to give you a prompt and then you can respond to that prompt however you would like. (laughs) So it's as if one of our listeners were coming to interview for any of your companies that you've worked with. What is the Zoom interview or in real life interview outfit tip that you would give them? And what are three traits you really look for in your team members? I know we kind of discussed that earlier, but... If you just have three that you want to highlight. Sure. 
Well, so as far as the outfit goes, it's not, it's kind of, in my view, it's sort of the overall image. I said, you know, you need to be interviewing, you, you need to know the company that you're interviewing for, and you need to, you know, sort of dress for the, the, the job you want. But as far as Zoom interview, wear, wear color, right? We're some, you know, the top is important, so wear color. Wear very simple, but maybe some distinctive jewelry where there's just earrings, nothing more than that. <laughs> and then I would say very natural makeup. Okay, and so the three things that, you know, I look for is I look for eye connection that evokes energy. In other words, you know, that there is engagement. Um, I also look for, um, ideas, you know, just as we're talking is new ideas based upon what they know about the company. They don't need to know everything, uh, but new ideas and great questions and are offering solutions of maybe challenges that they think I might have. Um, and then I think finally is, and I can tell as an interviewer, the, the desire to be a constant learner, right? Because you never know what I'm going to ask you to do once you're engaged with the company is that you have a balance of listening and at the same time, proactive, you know, behavior. That's what I would say. That's great. Great advice right there. I like the eye engagement one. I've never heard that before, but it's so clear. You can tell when you're talking to someone, especially over video chat, like yeah, from their facial reactions, so like video chat. Yeah. Like how excited they get by something that you're talking about and how passionate they are about retail or the industry. So that it's like, where do you advice. make eye contact though on zoom? Like, do you, it's so weird to stare into the camera or like stare at, I feel well, like first it's all, like take emotions. Do you have to take yourself off the screen? Because invariably you look at yourself, right? So yeah. You oh my god. Totally. Off the screen, and unlike I did for a moment, you have to have the phone away from you because you're tempted at looking and see what text came in for you. <laughs> totally. <laughs> right. Happens yeah. to the best of us. <laughs> Exactly. It's hard because if you're looking at the camera, then you're not looking at you. So you're not like really engaging with you. But if you're looking at you, then you're kind of not looking at the camera. But I, I do understand the whole like lean in emotion elements that come up, like whether or not your eyes are directly at the camera or the person. It's like you can tell right. the energy, the energy is well, there and, and the energy is exactly. not there. And the energy and the enthusiasm. And also, I have to tell you, it's when you're off Zoom and in a regular interview, it's the same. It's like, you know, some some level of animation, you know, so that people know that you're interested in what they're doing. Totally. Definitely. Right. But yeah. let your interviewer finish their sentence. That's all I can say. <laughs> or their and that is the most important. <laughs> right. Exactly. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to speak and to share your story with us. It is obviously so inspiring and incredible what you've been able to accomplish throughout your life and your career. If our listeners want to follow along any more with your career, where's the best place for them to kind of keep an eye out for you? Oh, Lord. Okay. Well, let's see. <laughs> well, I, well, the C2G, yeah, the, the C2G.com, we, we are still active in our consulting group, but you will be able to look at the 
the jumpmt for montana.com and you will see the development of a marketplace and a country music, the probably the largest country music dance floor live music venue in Montana. So, <laughs> you know, you always have to be a part she of your really community. does it all. Lynn does it all. <laughs> I can't even. I know. Oh, well. <laughs> On to the next adventure, obviously. That's right. Well, listen, I want to pay a thank you, one, for both of you to even, you know, consider me worth the podcast interview. Oh, my gosh. And also our dear friends, Tina Clark and Michelle LeClaire, for recommending the me best. to you. So, yes, definitely the best. So I will <laughs> share this podcast right to them as soon as I have the edit and as soon as you approve the edit. That's right. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> All right. Thank you, guys. Well, thank, thank you, you so ben. much again.